session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakou, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. Uh, the book for this week um, that actually I'll be talking about on next Wednesday's show, but let me announce the book first, is Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy. Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, America's Legacy of Enduring Injury and Healing. And so I'm very happy that on next Wednesday's show, I will be actually joined by the author, Dr. Joy DeGruy, on my show um, for the first hour. So uh, very excited to get to have her on and to read her book and discuss it with her. Uh, very fortunate to get the author on the on the show. Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And um, this was a very, very interesting book. Uh, you know, race and racism, of course, these issues have existed since the uh, beginning of America and, and, and beyond that, even or before that. Um, but it's definitely been much more in the public eye recently, last summer especially. Uh, and so this was a wonderful book because most people in the United States recognize racism is a problem, but at times we don't recognize all the ways that it's affecting us. And especially, we tend to think, of course, the people who suffer from racism are the ones who are being oppressed in some way. So, for example, black Americans. And, of course, they are paying the biggest prices, both in um, resources that are allocated, how they're treated in the country, all of those types of things. But what this book also helped explain was it's not just that people who are oppressed get effective neg affected negatively by racism. Actually, everyone does in a country that has any kind of uh, racism or really any kind of oppression. We see that it's not just the oppressed group that gets negatively impacted. It actually negatively impacts everyone. And of course, it's important to note it doesn't mean that the whites are harmed worse than blacks when we're talking about racism towards uh, black Americans, but that we can also recognize that it's hurting everyone. It's not just hurting um, some people. And so the sum of us, some S-U-M, um, really all of us together, which is uh, important. And if we all are together, what we can have is much better than what we tend to have right now. And so, um, you know, she starts the book talking about why can't we have nice things? A and so, of course, usually we hear that. Sometimes parents will say that to their kids um, to mean, you know, we can't have nice things because you break them or you don't treat them well or take care of them. But she was talking about why in a country like the United States, why can't we have nice things as in some of the basic things such as universal health care or uh, infrastructure or good schools in every city 
in the country. Why should some children go to schools that are much worse just because of the area they were born or the families they were born into uh, compared to other kids? And so, um, you know, she asks that question, how are we still in such a wealthy country, unable to provide some of the basics that other countries, maybe less wealthy than the United States, have been able to somehow figure it out or have made a priority? And one of the ways that this does happen is through racism. And so she shows different areas of life from housing to education to even uh, pollution or the way we treat the environment and shows how we can see racist roots or the roots of racism have helped create the problems that we are still currently facing today and that don't just affect black Americans, but affect all Americans. Everyone gets negatively impacted by this. And so one of the things that she talks about looking at the the title again with some in it is this zero sum way that there's a zero sum fallacy that has been uh, perpetuated since really all of time in the sense that if some people do better, it's going to be worse for you. Or if, for example, things get made to be better for black Americans, it's going to negatively impact white Americans. It's a zero sum. There's only one pie and you're trying to get the biggest slice that you can. So if someone else gets some, that means you get less. And we know that this is not the way economies work or function. Actually, a lot of times when more people get more, everyone gets more in the sense that, for example, when you invest money in education, that actually helps the country as a whole. When you give money even to people who are experiencing poverty, they tend to spend that money and it actually helps the economy overall. So this zero-sum model or this zero-sum myth, which has always been part of the ideology that has contributed to uh, things remaining the way that they are or people being against one another in some ways, uh, is because of this zero-sum myth. And so... As long as we've had uh, American history, one of the tools that the wealthy have used is to pit poor whites against the black Americans to make sure that they don't unite so that they don't actually work together because very often their interests are similar or they can have similar experiences. But what has commonly been done is that there has been, because of this racial hierarchy, and, you know, we, we use this term white supremacy, and I think it has this connotation that sometimes people throw it out to mean it's everything, uh, you know, people say it about everything, and so it loses value. But white supremacy is a very important concept to be aware of that has had a huge impact on American history and American present, the sense that whites are somehow superior to others. And this runs through so much of what we see happening in America and even in other countries as well. Even in uh, the Iranian culture, we see this, this tendency to think that white is better, which plays out in a few ways. Iranians coming to the United States wanted to be considered white. This was something they wanted to do. They didn't want to be considered uh, a colored people or a non-white people. Or the way that we try to connect ourselves or say the myth of being the original Aryans, something that we hear a lot. And Neda Marboulet does a great job in her book, The Limits of Whiteness, discussing these types of issues. But we see this theme of white supremacy 
running out throughout the world, and especially in American history, it's a very prominent theme. And so what was sold essentially, or what was given to poor whites, was what W.E.B. Uh, e. Du Bois called um, a psychological wage, essentially saying that, yes, you are poor, but at least you're not black, and trying to make sure they were not on the same page or were not united to realize that things were unfair in the economic setup. And so essentially as a way of one dividing these two groups who could have potentially worked together to actually overcome the inequities and the gross inequities that were already present in the country, um, but also justify the way that things were that this makes sense in some ways by in that way pacifying the poor whites by telling them that you are at least not black. This is a psychological wage. We don't give you more money, but you can always have someone to look down on. And sadly, this is one of the things that we as people are almost always looking for. We are trying to look for our own significance our own, in this sense, superiority. So if you can find someone to look down on, then in that way you feel better about yourself. And we tend to do this in different ways, from we are not like those people, my status is higher, so it makes me better than those people, um, men compared to women, today's International Women's Day, so we've seen this throughout history, so always I can feel some significance because I'm male compared to females, and there's different ways of proving, quote-unquote, the superiority there. So we see this happen in different ways, looking for our own significance in a way. Unfortunately, what we often do is rather than see goodness in ourselves or see that we are good as human beings or good as a person in what we do, we often find an easier way, which is a scapegoat or someone to look down on. And as long as I can find someone who's lower than me, I can use that to make myself feel better. And this is what has often been used by different groups to make some people who are being treated unfairly feel, well, at least you're better than whatever them we are talking about. And so we see this type of zero-sum mentality, uh, and uh, Heather McGee in this book, The Sum of Us, does a great job uh, of showing the different ways that this has negatively impacted all Americans as a result and could be partially to blame or a big part to blame of why we don't have some basic resources, things like, as I mentioned, um, universal health care, a better education system, better overall infrastructure because of this racism that has unfortunately always exists. Um, one great example of this, and even the cover of the book, you see um, a boy, I guess it looks like the boy that's jumping off of the, the diving board is white, but then there's a, I think, a black girl in the pool. But this example of the public swimming pools that around the time, I think it was after World War One, became really prominent all across the country. And the way she describes them, um, there were these really beautiful um, and very even uh, like resort-like pools, public pools that were huge. I mean, I think hundreds or even thousands of people could be swimming in these pools. And they became common uh, all across the country. Sadly, what happened is with integration, when it was no longer okay to keep things segregated, there was a lot of tension that came about 
as black children or black individuals, Americans, were um, now allowed to come to these public pools or to be in the same pools. And it created all sorts of chaos, even some violence. She, she talked about some incidents where people even died because people, white Americans, were protesting that the blacks were now allowed to be in their pools or share this space with them. And it created so much tension and chaos that in many of these areas, many of these beautiful public pools were actually drained or gotten rid of. And so to her, or, or I should say, she does a great job in this book expressing this theme. So we have these wonderful public pools that should be something great to bring people together, recreation, exercise, camaraderie, sense of community. But because of racism, because of this sense that we should not integrate, that somehow uh, having the blacks join the white pool would somehow uh, be a negative thing, have some kind of negative impact. And we hear this in different ways still when we look at things like any kind of xenophobia or a fear or dislike of the other. Because of that tension that was created, because of that racism, sadly, everyone lost the pool. Or really, um, there were these... Uh, the start of public or private pools that tended to be for whites only, and you maybe would have to pay a membership fee and, and all that, and was excluding the blacks in some ways. But really, the result was the public pools were no longer available to everyone, especially now, let's say, to poorer whites who could not afford going to the private pools. They paid the price. And so we see this theme again and again throughout the book that, yes, the blacks in America have paid a much bigger price and have taken the brunt of the burden of these types of issues and things that have come up where something, for example, public was no longer made available to everyone, but that whites were also affected as well. And so we have to recognize that when we have racism rampant in our country, our racism being a big part of uh, the country's experience, everybody pays a price. And she even cites studies that people have done, big organization banks, that have shown that segregation and racism costs money in large, even I think it was billions of dollars is the way that it actually plays out. So it's no small price, even in the sense of financial price that we pay, let alone the other things that, that racism and this type of hatred tends to bring about. So, you know, I want to continue the discussion on this book because it was a very fascinating read for me. As I mentioned, you see so much uh, racism is prevalent in so many different ways in the United States, and we've become uh, more face-to-face -face with it recently, which I think is good. But at times, we need to better understand the impacts it has in ways that we might not always think about. Yes, uh, for Black Americans, their experience in this country is hugely negatively impacted by racism. But to recognize that it's hurting everyone, I think that can be an eye-opening way, first of all, to understand the reality of the situation, but also to help bring people hopefully together to then take action um, and so that the sum of us can all come together and create something uh, better than just for the sum of us, only for some people to have those benefits. So let's go to a commercial break uh, after I'll talk about uh, Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm going to continue the discussion on the book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone. 
and how we can prosper together by Heather McGee. And so before the the break, I was talking about the public pools, which I think is such a, a great and I think a vivid and visual type of example of how racism can impact everyone, not just those who might be targeted in some way, but that all of us pay this price. Uh, in the book, she also talks about housing, uh, health care, um, and how there was some racism that was originally part of certain um, laws, regulations that were passed, but then affect everybody. Uh, we know about things like redlining, where you know buying a home is considered one of the pivotal parts of achieving the American dream, or especially of accumulating any kind of wealth or comfort is very often associated with buying a home, especially here in the United States. But there are some very explicitly racist um, uh, a legacy, you can say, but also impacts that were had by certain laws. For example, um, redlining, you maybe have heard that term before, where certain uh, areas that tended to be black neighborhoods were places where people were considered riskier to get loans, making it harder for them to buy homes. Or there were certain areas where blacks were not allowed to go buy a home. They were not going to be given um, loans if they applied or to, to buy those types of homes. So um, that legacy continues. And so when we see disparities of um, wealth in the United States, and there's huge ones when we look at average household income of white versus black families, this plays a big part in that, that it was harder for black families, black Americans to buy a home to then sustain that wealth and pass it on to future generations as compared to, for example, white families. And that's that's huge. Um, another interesting one was the impact. I think it was the, the title of the chapter was something like Under the Same Sky or something like that, which is, you know, essentially, I think, does a good job of painting the picture, even when you think of things like the air that we breathe or the climate. You can't just affect climate in one area. It's, it's a global type of a thing. Everywhere affects everywhere else, which is kind of how most things work. But sometimes with something like the air, let's say pollutants in the air, you might feel it more uh, vividly or viscerally, the sense that if you pollute the air in one area, it doesn't just stay there. It actually kind of reminds me of uh, before on airplanes, there used to be smoking sections where you could smoke on that part of the plane, but the air wouldn't, of course, stay there. The air would be basically going in other parts of the plane. So even if you weren't in that smoking section, you weren't free from the smoky air. And so similarly, when we make it okay to pollute in certain areas, because some of the elite or whoever might have that power thinks that, well, it's not affecting me. It's going to some them, some other. Um, that isn't the case. It doesn't just stay there and it affects uh, other things as well, the whole ecosystem. And so she shares, I think it was in Richmond, a, a city in Northern California, where there was this, I think it was a Chevron refinery, refining uh, refinery for oil and they would have pollutants in certain areas they had a really bad fire chemical fire that caused a lot of damage the number of cases of things like asthma is higher in these types of areas that have more pollutants i mean think about that part actually i remember i kind of felt something very strongly because i was imagining these kids uh, more kids having asthma imagine going to the hospital or having uh, health issues i myself actually had 
uh, asthma. Um, for those of you on the Instagram live, you might be able to see a scar I have here when I was a young child. I had to be you know, in the hospital for a while because of that. So maybe that's another reason why I could feel that viscerally in some way more. Um, but when you consider that some of our children are being exposed to pollutants because we might think it's more okay for them. Now, we would never say it in that way, but that's essentially what happens. But sadly, or really, I guess it's, it's the way that things go, it affects everyone. So it's not just them. It should, it should never be okay. But we can see that we can't just uh, target some things, some horrible things. We have to think of other ways of dealing with them rather than trying to make some people suffer the consequences. But so uh, the people in the more wealthy area of this town, they were also actually being exposed to the pollution when they did some studies on the air. And so we see that, you know, we all pay the price when we think that we're just paying or making some people pay the price. Usually that's not the case. And even um, this is the way that poverty works as well or doesn't work. But it's that when we have more poverty, we always see an increase in crime. When people don't have their basic needs taken care of, when people don't have the resources that they need to be taken care of and to have options to do certain things to develop themselves and to make better of their lives, there is more likely to be crime in those areas, which can affect all people. It doesn't just necessarily affect those areas that can, but it doesn't mean that it stays contained in that, those areas. So first of all, it's inhumane to make people suffer. But secondly, to think that you're going to be safe um, from something like poverty because you might not be experiencing it, we see that that's not the case. And so, of course, those who experience it experience it the most and have the most negative consequences but we see that we all get affected um, by those types of things and so i think the chapter on pollution or the chapter uh, on that area of the environment and how when we negatively impact the environment and impact some people we all end up paying the price or very often poor white people living in some of those areas might also pay the price so and oftentimes actually more white people might pay the price but disproportionately black people will be paying the price still we see that it's not something that stays so targeted another interesting chapter i found was uh, a chapter called the hidden wound now again racism has the biggest psychological impact negatively on those for example the united states african-americans the black population but in that chapter was showing the impact it also has on white americans uh, in various standpoints um, that they also pay the price when you have racism in this country to sell this lie that somehow you are superior to these bad people uh, or these people that are not as good as you. Uh, first of all, you have to isolate yourself from certain people. You have to uh, not allow yourself to be close to these bad people, which, which makes you um, pay a price. And also the way it makes you feel about yourself and about others that you should also feel that you're under threat, let's say, around those people, or that somehow you've been part of the uh, negative things that have happened to others when we sell this lie uh, of racism. So um, it was interesting, or sell this lie of race and, and, and the differences amongst people. So that was an interesting chapter looking at the psychological impact. Of course, we know things like the, the classic study or the classic court case of um, Brown versus School Board of Topeka in, in the United States, where it was found that 
integrating the schools or segregating the schools was not fair to the black children. It was not fair to them in so many ways, including even that it made them feel less good than whites. And one of the classic studies that was used in that court case was that often they found that um, the black children preferred to play with the white doll because somehow they thought that was better than the black doll. Uh, and so it's showing that, that impact. But it was saying that the flip side of that is that it's also affecting uh, the white children as well in different ways. So I thought that was very interesting. And, and the last chapter and, and this theme or this uh, concept that she talks about throughout the book is what she calls the solidarity dividend, which is essentially rather than the zero-sum mentality that if the people who are doing worse than you somehow get some benefits, it's going to negatively impact you or you lose something. Basically, a dollar in their pocket means a dollar less in your pocket. The solidarity dividend is what we gain when we actually come together. And I thought that was very um, interesting. So we, essentially, we have to lose this mindset of the zero sum and recognize that we can do so much more when we come together. As I mentioned in the previous segment, one of the old tactics oldest tactics in U.S. history is to pit poor whites against the, the black community and say that, you know, they're inferior to you, so at least you get that, and that prevents them or can lead to the prevention of those individuals working together for their own good, their overall good, getting better wages, getting health care, getting other resources uh, in their communities. Um, but if we keep them apart, you divide and conquer, as the saying goes, and that's something that we've seen throughout history. So she points out that the benefits are there, that if we work together, we get this solidarity dividend. Everyone um, benefits. We get more resources, can come to the pores in, poor people in general, um, and we can recognize that we we really we truly do need each other as she talks about here um, and one of the fifth thing she says in these five discoveries that she had in looking at uh, the, these issues was that we have to get on the same page before we can turn it meaning that we have to all come together and understand and recognize what we're going through before we can make progress and go forward and so I thought that that was quite interesting but I, I think this concept of the solidarity dividend is very important for us to recognize that really for us all to prosper, we all have to prosper. Or if you want to uh, have a better experience, you need to make sure that everyone has a better experience as well. And you might not think that it's going to impact you, but that it does. And we can all go further when we go together rather than when we go apart. And at the end of the book, uh, she shared some insights about, you know, people who are trying to bring people together. Or actually, I should say that theme was throughout the book, that there was a lot about the, the separation and the division, but also that people are trying to bring people together. And there's these different types of organizations that are trying to do that. And one of them that she talked about um, was something called Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation. And so... You know, I think when we look at the United States, we see that this wound of racism and this wound of even slavery has not yet been overcome. And like any type of wound or any type of wrongdoing, it first needs to be fully and completely acknowledged and recognized. The people who have done wrong 
doesn't necessarily mean individual white people who might maybe did not commit commit the type of crimes or the things that we're talking about, but maybe the U.S. government or in some way, there has to be recognition and uh, acknowledgement and an apology in some way for what has happened. And also, not just that apology in some kind of word, but action has to be taken to bring about reconciliation, which to me is many things. You hear a lot of discussions about reparations, and one of the first things is, well, should we have reparations or not? And usually, really, I think what people mean when they say, should we have reparations or not, is should there be a one-time payment or some kind of payment that is made to uh, Afri- African Americans in the United States, going back to what was supposed to happen, or some people, uh, you know, would say should have happened many years ago, which was that there should have been, um, you know, a payment made reparations, forty acres and a mule. You'll hear that thrown around as something that was mentioned to essentially apologize or paying back the wages. Of course, it wouldn't cover that of the slaves who worked for free and what they went through, but that never happened. And I think a payment might be part of the solution, but I think it's obviously more than just one lump sum apology. That that would remind me of if you buy a gift to someone you did wrong, but don't try to fix the problem or do anything about it. It might be important, and especially in this case, it's not just a gift, it's giving something that's owed. But more than just that payment, I think, first of all, we have to look into this issue further, but finding a way to bring about more justice in the sense that still in the United States, we have more black children going to bad schools than white children. And there's even a difference. And the the fact that there is such a difference between schools based on where you live, I think is a horrible problem, one that's discussed in this book. But that's something that would have to be addressed or the overall experience of black Americans would have to be looked at to bring about justice. As they say, the best apology is changed behavior. So in this case, changed policy, but importantly, changed results and outcomes for individuals living in the United States so that everyone at least gets the same basic resources. I know even as I say that, sometimes people are very almost allergic to hearing that equal outcomes because um, that brings about this notion that everyone should have exactly the same thing. And it's not saying that everyone should end with the same results. Of course, it does depend on what you do, but everyone should be given, given the same basic chance to start with. Everyone should receive some basics like healthcare and a strong public education when they're a child um, and other types of things that can take care of them and make sure they are okay. It shouldn't be given just to some of us, but it should be given to all of us or the sum of us, um, as in the grand total of everyone here should deserve those things. And, And I do think, you know, when I work with families or I work with couples, sometimes someone will just have made some mistakes or a mistake And it's hard for the relationship to move forward in a healthy way until that wrongdoing is acknowledged and recognized and apologized for by the individual who has done that thing. And when we're looking at the United States and things like slavery and the legacy of slavery in the United States and the racism that continues, I think it's hard to imagine we'll be able to move forward in a very healthy way, in the strongest way possible for all of our citizens until we have some kind of 
reconciliation for what has happened in this country. And of course, it's not just to black Americans, to the indigenous and to different populations, the, the Latinx population as well in different ways. We have to look at all of these issues, recognize the wrongdoing, and I don't think we'll be able to move forward in a healthy way until we do so. So I think this book um, does a great job of pointing out and explaining and exploring different ways that racism costs everyone. It doesn't just cost the people who are we are being racist to get against or the government or the policies are racist against. Yes, they experience it the most and the most significantly, but it impacts everyone in a negative way. And conversely, if we all come together, it'll be for the betterment of all as well. So that was the book, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. back. So today is March 8th, and it is the International Day of Women or International Women's Day. Um, And so I'm probably not telling you much because people are um, posting all over social media, which I think is is great. Um, And so I wanted to share some thoughts on this. Of course, I think it's wonderful that we are celebrating women and even uh, March is Women's History Month. And I always have some mixed feelings about these things, or I think it's important to look at at something um, when we have any of these days, even or Black History Month or um, the different types of days and things that we commemorate, which are very important to to discuss these issues. But we do have to recognize that we have a Women's History Day because women have not been appreciated enough throughout history. Uh, women have not been treated fairly or justly throughout history and even till today so it's not just in our history it's in our present because if i told you april is men's history month you would probably kind of laugh or think it's funny because basically all of human history has been a lot of it or a lot of the written history has been men's history or they've been at the forefront and it's been women that have been oppressed or not recognized just like we have Pride Week or different days and and, uh, types of holidays or commemorations for LGBTQ individuals. If I said that next week is um, Straight Appreciation Week or something like that, you would have a similar type of reaction. Maybe you'd even laugh or smile because it sounds funny because we know that these types of days, it's because we're recognizing that some group has been oppressed for too long and we're trying to change that. So in some ways, I think when we look at Women's History Month, women's history is human history, and we can't have human history without women's history, but it's an indication that for too long we have not recognized women significantly enough. It's in some ways an acknowledgement of mistreatment of women throughout history and in the present to try to shine a light or bring attention to um, women's history or to women in general, the contributions that they have made and continue to make. Uh, And, you know, someone asked me during the break, you know, talking about this book, The Sum of Us and uh, how racism costs everyone. It doesn't just cost the individuals who um, the racism is against. Of course, they pay the price more strongly. But the same, they asked, the, can the same be said about sexism? And I think absolutely that that is very much the case, that when we think about uh, women 
not being treated fairly, as is the case with any group, women being oppressed or held down. The primary victims there, the primary people who are paying the price are women. And they've been the one that have been unjustly held down, held back, uh, mistreated in so many ways. And of course, that needs to be recognized the most. But also the whole world, including men, pay a price when women are oppressed, just like all of America pays a price when black Americans are oppressed in some way. The world has paid and continues to pay a price when women are not given their fair resources, their fair share, attention, rights, all of the things that they deserve as equal human beings to men. We all pay a price. Everyone does when this happens. They pay the price and their experiences. But throughout history, we've also paid a price in holding back women and what they could have contributed. They contributed so much in so many ways, but we do see that there are ways that we made it harder for them, at least at a minimum, it could be said, to contribute in different ways from the sciences. Even still, they did and they have, but for so long, they were not given opportunities and even still in certain areas. For example, Malala, who's very well known, it was because in Afghanistan, she was not supposed to go to school because she was a girl and she was fighting against that. And so um, the men can think that it's benefiting them in some way. And so again, this goes back to what I was talking about in the previous segment with white supremacy, but also this male type of supremacy or the patriarchy is, you know, sometimes you hear that term when people want to say, well, because I'm still a man. So even if I'm on the lower rung of society, but at least I'm not a woman. That's something that men have held on to to make themselves feel better about themselves in some very, um, you know, bad type of a way, but might have made them feel better in the moment and still. But then they were paying a price, first of all, by mistreating others, because when we mistreat others, again, they're paying the biggest price, but that's a bad experience for you. When I hurt other people, I also pay a price. Um, and also I, not benefiting from the things they could have contributed had they been allowed to do so. So I think that that is an interesting point and connection that clearly can be made. And so um, in this book, when it's talking about what racism costs everyone, really it's what does any type of um, prejudice cost everyone. When we hold people back and hold people down, what does that um, do for everyone? And it hurts us. So, of course, we've been held back from the contributions that women could have made on top of what they already did throughout history and, and um, around the world. And it's still happening in different ways. Um, so that's one one big thing is that we've missed on that. What I think is also important is to recognize that what we're talking about is trying to make everyone equal in some way as far as having equal rights. Again, not necessarily means equality of outcome, but equality of rights, equality of resources that they get from birth to have a fair chance. Um, but what we also miss when we look at how women or being female has in a lot of ways been looked at negatively, we sometimes think that's just about women. But it also affects things like people being able to express themselves, male and female, when we make it that being feminine or being female is somehow not as good as being male. This affects the experience that many people can have, male and female, including men, of expressing what are considered feminine qualities 
And I say it in that way because being feminine or being masculine, although, yes, there might be some things biologically that have an impact, but these are not some things that don't change over time or even during a certain time in different areas or different countries, different cultures. For example, crying, especially in the United States, crying as a man um, is sometimes looked at as a sign of weakness. But that wasn't always the case throughout history. Sometimes strong men were the ones that would cry for something that was important. It wasn't seen as a weakness. It was in that way actually even seen as a strength. But because we hear things like this so much, it seems to be automatic or natural that somehow this was part of um, being male was that we don't cry. You don't express that, which is not true. But it also was not always even true as a concept or a construct. These things change. But so when we have this tendency or this belief that men are superior to women, we pay the price in multiple ways, including not allowing for men to express their more feminine sides or feminine attributes that everyone has and that might be very useful in especially certain circumstances and situations. I remember hearing a talk many years ago when I was an undergrad, um, and it was showing this type of male superiority mindset. And it was saying that uh, they were saying that really, if you want to go to any playground, the quickest way to create a fight between two boys is to say that one of them said that you were like a girl to the other one, and that would be a fight. Whereas if you call a girl a tomboy, which is usually, uh, you know, a girl who's more into sports and active in that way, um, that could be a, actually a compliment. Uh, but to call a boy a girl in any way is considered something negative. There's such a, uh, th- a threat to masculinity that is so prevalent is because it's looked at as negatively to not be masculine or to be feminine because of some of this dynamic or this mindset that we have. And even this affects things like sexuality, where men are so afraid to be looked at as homosexual or attracted to other men that they have to be, uh, they can feel this pressure to be homophobic or or to ward off against any indication that they might be homosexual in some way. And you see this play out in so many ways. I've talked about this, I think recently, or I'm not sure if I did, but a thought came to my mind that when it comes to, for example, promoting LGBTQ rights, If I go to some event, if I see a girl wearing a rainbow flag on their shirt or wearing a rainbow flag in some way, if it's a female, I even realized myself and I talked to a few people who they said they they could see that they felt the same way. You might think it's it could be, of course, a, a girl, female who is a member of the LGBTQ community or identifies in that way. But you also think it could be possible they're just supporting gay rights, but that if you saw a male wearing a rainbow uh, shirt or something that was supporting gay rights, you'd be more likely to think he himself must be a member of the LGBTQ community. I myself have posted things um, supporting uh, gay rights, LGBTQ rights, or um, a picture where I was at some event and I had a few people comment are you gay or asking me because I think they were just so surprised or maybe they think, why would a um, straight man support gay rights? Because it's an indication of how risky it can feel that you can lose your masculinity or the sense of 
um, who you are as a man, which you have to protect, and it could be under threat, so that you should never even risk something like that. And I think that's really sad. So, of course, I'd want to make sure not to say that um, when we look at sexism, that the we're not going to talk about how much men suffer and poor men who are suffering the most. Absolutely not. It's been women that have overwhelmingly paid that price and continue to pay that price and it's not even in comparison but it's important to look at how it does affect everyone Um, i would hope that men would want to promote women's rights even if they didn't see this direct impact on their own lives but it can help bring about solidarity talking about the solidarity dividend that heather mcgee discusses in her book the sum of us to recognize that we all will be better do better have better uh, experiences and life outcomes when we raise everyone up it's not zero sum that if women get more rights men somehow will be denigrated or brought down or have a really bad experience that doesn't at all have to be the situation when you lift women up you actually help uh, everyone everyone does better when you have these uh, contributions that are given uh, there's an analogy that i really like that you can look at society as having um, two wings one wing being men one being one wing being women and that society flies the highest if both wings are strong if one is strong and the other is weak it can only go so high but when both wings are strong it can fly much higher and i really like that analogy because it looks at how it's not just helping women okay we're we're doing you know men might think we're doing them a favor not at all Um, it's first of all more fair and more just but it's better for everyone for all of society when we uh, give more rights to women when they are given equal rights we all benefit from it and men also can feel more comfortable expressing who they are when they don't have to be afraid of looking feminine being something negative and i know there's a lot of talk people will say uh is oh we want you know people that are promoting these types of things they want men to be like women and they want women to be like men and everyone has to be the same or everyone has to be something and that's not at all what i would want to promote what i think is important is for everyone to have the flexibility the freedom and the opportunity to be whoever they are and however they are that A man doesn't have to only be within this narrow range of what it means to be a good man or a strong man or whatever that means. And a woman can't only stay in certain spaces that are more womanly or feminine, that everyone can be what they want to be. And you could be a man that still um, does act and lives a very traditionally masculine life. You would still have that space and opportunity and a woman could still live what would be considered the traditional, whatever their culture um, is, female life or life for a woman, but that they wouldn't have to, that we would have the space to be who we want to be and not have to feel limited in this way. But what we see is people feel very limited in how they express themselves, how they experience their life because they're being told that they have to be a certain way. And especially men might even feel that, well, if I lose that manliness i become more inferior because to be female is not as strong and so when we recognize that that is absolutely not the case that men and women should be equal that all people should be treated 
equally, um, we all get to win in that way. It's not a win-lose, it's a win-win. And so in celebrating Women's History or, or the International Day of Women and Women's History Month, I think it's very important that we continue to bring about this type of awareness and conversation and we think about these things. And I also do, as maybe uh, it might sound negative, but I do look forward to a day when we no longer will need a thing like the International uh, Women's Day or Women's History Month because we've achieved equality uh, for so long that those things won't make sense or they might be done in a different context than in the way they still are. And I think we're going in the right direction, but we still have uh, a ways to go, and I'm hopeful that we will get there. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. I get to thank a very strong woman here in the studio, Farouk is here today, because Amir could not be here, so thank you to her. Uh, thank you to everyone who's tuning in on Instagram Live and also uh, on the air. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farouk Alakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.